Why does the most famous American religious scholar no longer believe in the resurrection? This is the Deep Questions Podcast, and today we continue our interview with best-selling author, YouTuber, and theology professor, Dr. Mike Lacona. Now, Dr. Lacona is friends with Bart Ehrman, who is probably the most well-known religious scholar in the United States. You've probably seen him on the Colbert Report and on all sorts of nightly news and documentary-type things, and surprisingly, Dr. Ehrman is an agnostic, bordering, really, on atheism, even though he grew up a Christian. Today, we discuss Dr. Lacona's seven-hour debate with Dr. Ehrman, as well as what might have caused Ehrman to stop believing. We also discuss more reasons to believe that Jesus historically rose from the dead, as well as the best ways to talk to an atheist or skeptic about the resurrection. Before we do that, I would like to welcome new listeners in Helsinki, Finland, Lower Saxony, Germany, Kampala, Uganda, New South Wales, Australia, Johannesburg, South Africa, Manila, Philippines, Canterbury, and Northland, New Zealand, Punjab, Pakistan, Assam, India, Santa Fe, Argentina, London, United Kingdom, North Holland, Netherlands, Tel Aviv, Israel, Parts Unknown, Nepal, British Columbia, Canada, Orlando, Florida, Mobile, Alabama, South Bend, Indiana, Denver, Colorado, Bloomington, Illinois, Paducah, Kentucky, Casper, Wyoming, El Dorado, Louisiana, Grand Junction, Colorado, and Juneau, Alaska. Look, thank you all for listening to this show, and please allow me to invite you to share the show with your friends, and I guess your enemies as well. And also allow me to invite you to leave us a great review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That kind of thing really helps us to reach more people. That's kind of our goal here, to discuss things like the resurrection of Jesus with as many people as possible, and you are the best way to make that happen. So please share the show. Today, we're going to pick up our interview with Dr. Lacona right at the point where we discuss his relationship with Dr. Ehrman and the seven-hour debate between the two of them that just occurred in April. So, well, let's talk about Bart Ehrman. Probably, for reasons I'm not sure I fully grasp, he's probably the most well-known religious scholar in the United States of America, maybe in the world. He's written a lot of books. A lot of them are bestsellers. When I was in Dr. Habermas's class, I wrote what was probably my longest paper that I wrote in seminary, and it was basically interacting with the arguments of Dr. Ehrman and really the kind of the more popular expression of some of those arguments that you find in Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, which is like a really, really watered down sort of Bart Ehrman's things on some of the conspiracy theories and the the variants and textual variants in the Bible and that sort of thing. So so I'm very I'm quite familiar with Ehrman, certainly not a scholar or anything like that. I haven't read read all his books, don't want to read all his books, but I have a few of them. I've interacted with him. But you, on the other hand, seem to have a pretty deep relationship with Dr. Ehrman. There's tons of video out there of you guys interacting. I know you've talked to him quite a bit. So I, I guess I'm curious, what, what do you find him to be like personally? And how is it that you came to get to know him? Well, we have become friends over the years. So we've now engaged, I think, seven debates. And <laughs> We couldn't disagree more on a number of issues. We are just so different in our philosophical views, how a historian can do history, stuff about Jesus, even our politics are, are radically different. But it, it, we treat each other collegially during the debate, and I, I don't 
talk bad about him out there publicly. I only do it privately. I'm just teasing. But <laughs> I, I don't go out there talking smack about Bart. And I don't know if he talks smack about me behind my back, but I don't think he does so publicly. We've had good collegial, respectful debates, but they're spirited debates. We let each other know that we really disagree with the other person and that, that we think the other is definitely wrong. So, But we respect one another still. And so we get along pretty well. And so, yeah, we have, I have fun time debating him, even though he's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I agree with you that he's wrong. I I will say he raises some points that that, that most Christians that just get up and faithfully go to church every Sunday morning, they don't, they don't realize. I think uh, I'm a pastor, I've been a pastor for 25 years. So I, I feel like I point out some weaknesses in the profession a little bit. One thing I think pastors have failed to do for not every pastor, but a lot, for the last hundred years is really equip the people in the church apologetically. And so when they hear a guy that's really, really smart and really clever and really engaging, like Dr. Ehrman, when they hear him bring up things like there's all these textual variants in the Bible, and most people in the pews probably assume that we basically have Xerox copies of Paul's letters and, and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John's gospels that date to the first century kept in a vault somewhere they they hear these things and it really can undermine them well look it's scholars have known about these textual variants since the the first and second century Zebius and other people have talked about this none of this is hidden it's just not something that's discussed very much so do you think that dr ehrman overstates his case about the textual variants that we find in the New Testament essentially undermine the reliability of the Bible? Yes and no. Okay. So uh, let me say, first of all, Ehrman does not subscribe to some of the insane, silly, ridiculous stuff in the Da Vinci Code. So his stuff is much more nuanced and, and not as radical. However, when I say yes and no about do I think he overstates his case, no, he doesn't technically overstate his case. Because let's just take, for example, the variance in all the different manuscripts. Um, In his book, Misquoting Jesus, he points out how the scribes, many of them, just messed up things. They made silly errors. They made intentional changes to the text and things like this. But in the appendix of the, like the second edition of that book, they added an appendix and they asked him about this. Does this undermine the reliability of the Greek text of the New Testament? And he said, no, because these are mainly just spelling errors, grammatical errors, errors in or changing in word order. And he says, it's just the kind of simple mistakes that his own students make. But he said, you know, the if people are getting that impression, it's just it, it's it's a false impression because he says I think that the Greek text of our New Testament that we have today is essentially what what the authors wrote, though not one hundred percent so. So he does clarify things like that. So no, he doesn't overstate his case. Yes, he does overstate his case. And the reason he does do that when it comes to textual variance is because the impression that he gives. And I don't know his heart, but I have a difficult time thinking it's not intentional. It's very sensational, and people walk away from that book thinking 
that we just can't trust the text of the New Testament that we have. And that is why Mormons and Muslims and atheists have gravitated to the book, because it undermines, especially Mormons and atheists, skeptics and Muslims, they they do it because it undermines the reliability of the New Testament, that our ability to trust in it. So whether it's intentional on his part or not, if it's if it's intentional, well then shame on Bart. But I'm going to go with with him and say that it's not intentional. And in that case, he's just a poor communicator. He's fun to listen to, but he's just a poor communicator when it comes to things like that, because he's given the wrong impression to people. And there are other things like that as well. He does it on memory. He wrote a book on memory, Jesus Before the Gospels, and you walk away from that book thinking, we we can't really trust, you can't trust the Gospels, because even had they been written by eyewitnesses, which Bart doesn't think they were, even had all four of them be written by, by eyewitnesses, we couldn't trust it, because you can't trust memory. Memory is so unreliable. But despite that, there are four short sentences in the book that says, oh, but, you know, despite its shortcomings, memory is generally reliable, at least when we come to the gist of things. But people still walk away from the book because he spent so much time calling memory into question and relating it to the Gospels. They walk away thinking we can't trust the Gospels because memory is so fallacious. It's so weak, so prone to problems. So I think that's just a communications problem on his part. Yeah, it seems like, and, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to make an accusation here because I, I'm not sure. But it seems like he talks different ways to different groups of people. In terms of academia, he's maybe a little more careful to make his arguments about the the textual variants and things like that not being anything in the realm, as you say, of, of a Dan Brown kind of conspiracy theory, which just is ridiculous. But he seems to be much more careful with that, uh, a lot more like his mentor, Bruce Metzger. But in terms of his some of his more popular kind of appearances and his more popular books and, and stuff, he does seem to emphasize those things in a greater way. I don't know. Maybe that's just some form of showmanship, some way to drum up interest. Whatever he's doing, it's you know you can't. I guess you can't yeah, argue with results, at least in the sense of success. Yeah, exactly. I, I just think. I just think he's wrong, and I hope that's not too uncharitable to say. Well, his his major objection against the resurrection it seems to be, at least it was, I know the goalposts have shifted a little bit with him, but it seems to be that uh, the, rep- the, the resurrection would represent a miracle from God, and historians can't, can't reckon with a miracle from God, because a miracle is, is way too improbable. So how do you answer that argument? Yeah, and of course, he's not the only one that says that. There are others. Several ways that he says a miracle. He'll say one thing, that a miracle, by its definition, is the least probable explanation. Again, this isn't isn't just him. I've debated another guy, a guy in South Africa, his name eludes me at the moment. He uses a similar argument. But he, he would say a miracle, by its definition, is the least probable explanation. Historians must go with the most probable explanation. Therefore, they could never say a miracle occurred. And to that, I'd say, well... In what sense is it the least probable explanation? In other words, least probable in reference to what? Because if God exists and wanted to raise Jesus, well, then it becomes the most probable explanation. It's only the least probable Mm. if you say least probable by natural causes. But no one's saying that Jesus was raised by natural causes, right? 
claim is that he was raised supernaturally. So that just seems to me that's a confused definition of miracle. Another way you could say, well, it's a theological explanation, not a historical one. But I think this is to con- to confuse a, a historical conclusion with its theological implications. So let's say that a comet slams into the moon's surface, and when the lunar dust settles, there's a message written on the moon that says, Jesus is Lord, and it's written in Hebrew and in Greek. Well, an astronomer, a scientist would look at that and would say, wow, that's a pretty amazing event. Now, if it would seem to require a divine cause. However, as a scientist, I don't possess any tools capable of identifying such a cause. So I'm just going to say, well, this event occurred, and I'm not going to opine on the cause of the event because I don't have the tools to be able to, to do that. What a, what a scientist would not do is the scientist would not say, wow, what an extraordinary event. Wow. I mean, it certainly happened, and it would appear that it would require a divine cause. However, I don't have the tools necessary to adjudicate on that matter. So that would be a theological explanation, not a scientific one. So as a scientist, I can't even say that the event itself occurred. Now, as crazy as that sounds, that's precisely the approach that some skeptical scholars are taking when they say you cannot adjudicate on a miracle claim. They're saying because it would involve a theological explanation and we don't have the tools to detect God as historians, we can't say that the resurrection occurred. You follow me on that? So yeah, you could say the resurrection occurred and just leave the cause undetermined if we have enough evidence to suggest Jesus actually rose from the dead. And I think we do. Yeah, so a few episodes ago on this uh, podcast, we had Dr. Craig Keener for a couple of episodes, and he talked about his book on miracles, which is, I don't know, it's like 1,200 pages. It weighs four or five pounds. It's just this massive thing. I, I would I would like to claim that I've read it all. I haven't. My friend Lonnie has. But I've read enough of it that it, it's just absolutely overwhelming in the sense that Keener documents miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. So if you go into that book, and I didn't, of course, but if you go into that book with kind of the Hume viewpoint that miracles are impossible, or even a softer version of that, which I would think uh, Ehrman holds to, that miracles are really, really improbable and and unprovable, I, I think you come out of reading Keener's book, which is not sensational. It's very scholarly, especially his big version. He has a popular version. I think it's called Miracles Today, which is a, a little more, I don't want to say watered down, but it's a little more palatable for a non-scholar. But you come away from his, his big scholarly version, and I don't know how a skeptic could just read all that and read all the evidence and say, ah, oh, you know what? Miracles aren't impossible. So I, I think I... I Having read that book, I walked away thinking, number one, miracles aren't quite as rare as I thought they were, and certainly even occurring today. And I also think that historians that are skeptical even have to maybe grapple a little bit more with the possibility of miracles, which is something you you address a historiographical approach to the resurrection book, and you and Dr. Habermas address as well. Keener is amazing. He's just an amazing researcher and writing writer, and he, he his he's got encyclopedic knowledge. He does, and he's such a good guy too. He's so gentle and nice, and 
and and kind and and I, I was I'm just really impressed with the guy. Just an awesome guy. Um, you had a this almost sounds weird to say it. I had to do a double take when I first saw it. You had a seven hour debate with Dr. Ehrman in, in April of this year. That's astounding. I know you can't go into too much detail about what happened in the debate and all that kind of stuff because it, it's, it is available. I think Dr. Ehrman's website essentially sells the debate. But what was it like to have a seven hour debate? Tell us about that. Yeah. I had this policy over the years, Chase, that once I debate someone, I usually get along pretty well with them. I just don't like to give any kind of like real public comments about it afterward, just out of respect for my opponent. Unless they do, then all bets are off, of course. But it was a seven-hour debate. You'd say, well, what do you debate for that long? Well, I mean, there's a lot of data when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus and a lot of issues like the one of miracles that you brought up a moment. And can historians actually investigate miracle claims? And is, what kind of evidence are we looking at? And what's the best explanation for this evidence? So the debate, I thought, went pretty quickly, moved rapidly the way they had it all set up. It, it just made, they really did a good job in forming the debate. And this is something Bart and I talked about beforehand, but a guy named Chris Huntley, who who works for Bart, does work for Bart, He's he was mainly the one that put this thing together, and he just did a great job. And so it moved along, it was entertaining, it was full of of content. So a person who views the debate is going to walk away with a, a lot of stuff that was discussed, substantive things. There wasn't a lot of fluff in this debate. It was a lot of substance. It was a good time. It was spirited. I mean, Bart and I really disagree on a lot of things, and we let each other know about it. We didn't pull punches. So it was fun. It was a good debate. That's that's awesome. Now, I, I understand that it, it seems like you kind of went into his home court, essentially, to use a, a sports analogy. The moderator, I think, Megan Lewis, I don't know her very well. She has a YouTube channel, Hammurabi Code or something along those lines. She's a very clever person, but I, I think she's probably more his ilk in the agnostic atheist realm. Yeah. So did you sort of feel like the deck was stacked against you? No, I mean, I knew I was in his home court, that most of the viewers, and there were over 2,100 people who paid to view this debate, because you could see it by by paying pay-per-view only. So I knew that most of them were, I was in his home field, his home court, like you say, and the moderator, definitely more on his side. But no, I, I thought it was it was fair. I thought the moderator was was very good. I thought she did a great job. And yeah, so it was a good time. It, I thought it was a fair debate, the way it was set up and everything. Great. Well, uh, well, kudos to you for going into going into as a visitor to the home field, an opponent, and having a a seven hour showdown. I am looking forward to watching more of that. Okay, so last question on your interactions with Dr. Ehrman. And really, this is more of a, a general question on atheists and skeptics that are similar to Ehrman in that they are vocal about it. So Ehrman has said, like, he, he has a, a certain kind of respect for the Bible. I mean, he grew up, as he says, an evangelistic Christian. I, I, I understand some something happened maybe some sort of tragedy in his life and but but ultimately he sort of by his words uh, some combination of suffering and suffering in the world and and things along those lines kind of 
moved him on the spectrum from a evangelistic Christian to a non-evangelistic Christian to ultimately, he calls himself an agnostic now. I would say he's really, really borderline an atheist. But I guess a lot of people like Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, people along those lines, they're not content to simply not believe or no longer believe. I in the trailer for the debate you had with Dr. Ehrman, he he's standing up there. He's almost like a pre. He sounds like a preacher, which which is fine. I mean, I'll hate preachers. I am one. But he says he says if somebody was buried in a tomb and you went there three days later and it was empty, you wouldn't think resurrection. No, you'd think grave robbers or I'm at the wrong tomb. He has the inflection of a preacher. He has the force of of a preacher. He's trying to convince you that. Um, I don't know that he's trying to convince you so much that he's right. He's trying to convince you that Christianity is wrong, that the resurrection is wrong. It seems like a lot of modern internet atheists and agnostics are evangelists for their skepticism. It's, it, it, they, they want to, they don't, I'm not saying they want to win converts for themselves, but they want to win converts for their ideology. Yeah. So, well, what do you, it's, it's weird for Ehrman in that way. I mean, Dawkins and Hitchens both believe that the Christianity is somewhat toxic in various ways and manifestations. Ehrman, I don't think believes that nearly as much. So, yeah, yeah, he does. He does think. He does think that an evangelical form of Christianity is toxic. So, so, so that you, you think that's the explanation? I wouldn't say he's as adamant in that belief as as Dawkins was. But you know what? Maybe the last ten years, politically and all that, has concreted his beliefs more so. So, do you think that explains his whole evangelistic approach to skeptic? It's it's really hard to say, Chase. You, I would just be guessing at his as motives, perhaps. And that's that's really hard to do. I, I, I do think over the years he's be, developed a greater animosity toward conservative Christianity, an evangelical form of it. And so, you know, why? Who knows? He has expressed in writing in his book, God's Problem, that he often wakes up at night in fear mm. of hell. And then he wrote a recent book. I think his most recent book, or at least one of them, is on heaven and hell. And so it's kind of interesting that he's trying to take the Bible and and read it in such a way that hell doesn't exist. And he says he thinks that the Bible teaches heaven, but he doesn't think that it's it's talking about conscious torment in hell. And so that might be his way of trying to to deal with his fear of hell when he wakes up at night in fear of it. But I mean, we just don't know. It, it's hard to to. It's a chancy exercise to try to guess at one's motives. All we can really do is look at the actions. And we do see that over the years, he is, become, he is like you say, an evangelist. You could call him an iconoclast. He's, he's, he works hard to pulling down the icon of, of Orthodox Christianity. You could call him an apologist for his skeptical views. I wouldn't call him an evangelist because evangelist means someone who brings good news. Now, he may consider it good news, you know, but he, he is definitely trying to convince people away from believing in a conservative, orthodox view of, of Jesus in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, pseudo-evangelist or ersatz evangelist or some, something along those lines. I have not read his most recent book. It's interesting what you say about his his wrestling with the whole issue of hell. I guess the difficulty, there's, there's evangelical 
well, there's Christians who've labeled themselves evangelical that have also sort of come to similar conclusions about hell. But the difficulty with that is, as you well know, is Jesus that talked the most about hell in scripture and and gave some of the the deepest gave us some of our deepest understandings on that so you you would kind of have to put words in his mouth you would have to kind of postulate that the later church put words in his mouth and I don't think there's really any sort of textual evidence that that happened in the case of most of his teachings on hell. I think whatever the whatever the nature of condemnation is and it might be different for different people I I, I don't know it's not something I've given a lot of study to, but whatever the nature, for those who reject Christ, who hear the gospel, reject Christ, whatever the nature of the consequences of that is, Jesus speaks in terms that it, it is something to be avoided at all costs, right? Yeah. So I think that's something that we, we can agree on. And and I really don't know what the nature of hell is. It's just, there are various views out there, but what, what and again, it's nothing that I have spent a significant amount of time looking at. What I... But what does seem very clear is whatever it is, it's something we're to, to avoid at all cost. I, I don't get the sense that in any way, shape, or form that Jesus was talking about a hypothetical sort of danger. All right, I, I don't want to. I don't want to keep you all day. So let me ask a couple more questions, and, and we'll get out of here. So let's let's do the whole elevator pitch question, but but a little bit of a twist apologetically. You are on an elevator with somebody, and maybe you're in a really, really big building. You got 90 seconds. You notice they're reading a book about Christianity, and they see you looking, and they look at you, and they say, well, what do you think about all this? What do you think of, you think Jesus really rose from the dead? So in in a scenario, whatever it might be, where you only have 90 seconds, what are you going to tell a person who has that genuine question? Well, I would do a a really hard down version of the minimal facts approach and say, there's so much we could look at here, but we can just put a case for the resurrection of Jesus like this. There are a number of facts that are so strongly supported by the data that the a very large and heterogeneous majority of scholars, a consensus, agree that these are facts. So we're talking about things like Jesus's death by crucifixion, that shortly after his death, a number of his followers had experiences they interpreted as appearances of the risen Jesus to them. That there was a persecutor of the church named who, in the midst of his activities of persecuting the church, he had an experience that he interpreted as the risen Jesus appearing to him, and it radically transformed his life from being a persecutor of the church to one of its most able defenders. They also believed, these people believed, that Jesus actually rose from the dead and did so bodily, physically. So now, what we have to do, if we're going to look at this historically, is put together a number of hypotheses and see which one best accounts for those facts. And when you do that, whether you're looking at lies, or hallucinations, or metaphor, or Jesus survived his cross, or or whatever it may be, Jesus had an identical twin, the resurrection hypothesis is the only one that can account for those facts adequately. And therefore, if just approaching it as a professional historian, uh, using the tools of historians, we can say that the resurrection 
probably occurred. Great. And so if you've, you're on a plane flight and you have, I don't know, an hour to, to talk about the same thing, are you just going to expand on the minimal facts argument if somebody's asking you about your reasons to believe? Yeah, pretty much so. But I, I would say it just depends on the on the person. It's like what, what they throw at you at first. I mean, they might say something like, look, I, I, don't, I don't believe the Gospels, and therefore I don't believe the resurrection of Jesus. Well, I could go right to Paul, which is stronger. Or it depends what mood I'm having that day. I might, I might say, feel like I want to talk about the Gospels more. And so I might say, well, why don't you like the Gospels? Well, we don't know who wrote them. Why do you say that? Oh, well, they don't have the... I've heard that the original manuscripts didn't have the author's name, that these things were related later on. And then I'd say, well, did you know that of the nearly 100 biographies that are written within 100 years, 150 years on each side of Jesus, that there's only one that has the author's name in it? So they are technically anonymous in the same sense that the Gospels are. And that's the reason because that was standard practice not to put the author's name there. But somehow the ancients knew who wrote them. And here's why the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John came to be known as the authors of those Gospels. So I just might want to, it just depends how I'm, but generally speaking, yes, I'm going to follow the, the minimal facts approach because it's simple, because it's easy, it's clear, and you just unpack it as it goes along. And and I do this a lot on flights. It's like I'm sitting next to the person, and I'll I'll say to them, "Hey, how's it going?" Maybe we're in Atlanta because that's where I I live in the Atlanta metro area. And I'll say, "So where are you headed today?" And they'll tell me, "Oh, do you live here in Atlanta, or is this a connecting flight for you?" So what do you do for a living? And I talk to them about them for a while, and then it's usually natural for them to say, "Well, what do you do for a living?" Well, I, I'm a historian of Jesus. I study more not on the theology, but on what we can prove about Jesus. And I focused on the question of whether Jesus rose from the dead. And then I leave it at that. (laughs) And then, oh, really? A lot of times they'll say, there's evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And then I just, I don't force it. I just offer something. And if they want to go further with it, I go further with it. If they just say, oh, well, that's interesting. And then they turn around because they're, and, 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 you know, look at their laptop or something. I know they're not interested and I don't try to force the conversation because I got a lot of reading that I can do on that plane and I'm happy to do that reading. (laughs) That's a great approach. I appreciate that you don't have a a sort of rote standard approach. I feel like some of the evangelistic training that we saw in Christianity in the 70s and 80s, it, it was good in the sense that it got people sharing their faith, but it might've been a little wooden in the sense that Everybody was sharing their faith maybe in the exact same way, and I think a more fluid approach that involves engaging the person the way you just talked about, honestly, probably a lot stronger in the current culture we live in. All right, so let's get you out of here on this. I'll ask you a few rapid-fire questions. It'll be as, as short and brief, or uh, if you want to engage, that that's fine. But of all the books you've written, do you have a favorite? A favorite, I'd say, but I I do like the big book on the resurrection, The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach. Books aren't necessarily fun to write, but it's fun to do the research behind them. So, but that one was fun because there it's, I'm on a journey. So I did something my doctoral supervisor suggested. So when you're writing, try to imagine yourself as a tour guide and you're taking people through your museum. And so as you read through this very long and and very extensive treatment on the question of whether Jesus rose from the dead, it's like we stop at different stations. 
Station one, what is history exactly? What is it that historians do and how do they do it? And then we go to the next station. Well, there's a big thing that gets in the way that's got, it's the elephant in the room and it's got to be discussed. And that is, can historians even look at miracle claims? And so we deal with that. It's like, then we go to the next station. Well, what is it? How, what's our first step? Well, you got to look at your pool of sources and determine what are your best sources and why. So we look at these different, and so I take them through the museum. So that was kind of neat. And then I do like the book that I wrote on gospel differences that was published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Why are there differences in the gospels? And in there, I present a fresh approach because I just thought that over the years, a lot of these harmonization efforts that I was reading to resolve gospel differences, they just struck me in a cold manner. It's like these these things are forced in order to rescue a certain rigid view of what we mean by inerrancy. And I thought there's got to be a better way than this, something that really treats the scripture with respect rather mm-hmm. than trying to bend meanings and, and force things to fit. And so I came up with looking at compositional devices that are just common in the Greco-Roman and Jewish literature and saying, you know what? Since classicists are in wide agreement that the Greco-Roman and Jewish authors are using these things, shouldn't we expect the gospel authors to be using the same kind of devices? What would it what would it look like if we read the gospels in view of these compositional devices? And when you do, significant majority of these gospel differences can be resolved quite easily, very easily. And I think in many cases it's the most probable, most plausible explanation of why these differences are there. So it's an interdisciplinary approach between the classics and the New Testament literature. And so I'm really excited about that book. And I'm writing a more, that's a pretty academic version. I'm I'm looking to write a, I'm in the midst, I'm almost done actually, a more easily accessible and understandable version for the person in the pew. That's important. That, that's, that's really important. Great. Nate, tell us the name of the book again. Why are there differences in the Gospels? That's the more academic version. Great. Awesome. Two more questions. What spiritual activity that you engage in brings you the most life or encouragement or peace? However you want to answer that one. Spiritual activity. Well, it's like, well, what's a spiritual activity? I mean, is it prayer, fasting? I hate fasting. <laughs> so that doesn't bring it. <laughs> That's all right. I believe God's given me a spiritual gift of teaching. So I really enjoy lecturing. I enjoy debating. These things are fun for me. So mm-hmm. that would bring, the, I guess you could say that's the spiritual activity that that brings, that's most exciting to me. It's interesting. You're the first person I've ever asked that question that's answered it that way. I can relate to that. As a pastor, I, you obviously teach a lot. And I've also been a college professor for years and, and, and you teach a lot. And I guess there's a sense when you're done with that, there's, there's a sense that you are drained a little bit, but there's an even bigger sense, I think, that, that it can be very refreshing and encouraging to bring out the word and interact with the word with some students. All right, last question. You've got a time machine. And you can take only one trip back to some time in church history from the second century on. So not the Bible times, second century on. And you can go listen to one person preach one sermon or teach one class. Who are you going to pick? Oh, boy, that's a good question. 
So I would guess it would either have to be Papias or Polycarp because, huh? Yeah, if it's a second century person, because both of them lived in the very early second century. And in fact, Papias probably lived in the first century. Papias is when he talks about where he got his information, his the language he uses is ambiguous. There's some ambiguity in it. So it can be interpreted in a couple of different ways. Oh, well, a few different ways. Some, like Irenaeus, said that he got his information from the Apostle John, that Papias personally knew the Apostle John. The way Papias puts it, though, it could also be interpreted as Papias personally knew a minor disciple who knew Jesus, whose name was John. It could also be interpreted the way he describes it as Papias knew an associate who had traveled with the Apostle John or an associate who had traveled with the other John, who had been a disciple of Jesus. So it's one of those four. Any one of them is like really good. And Polycarp, there's some decent evidence that says suggests that he may have known the Apostle John, the yep. son of Zebedee. So either one of those, it seems to me, would have been really good. Clement of Rome, it's very possible that he knew the Apostle Peter. Yep. But, he, but that's a first century figure. He's writing either the middle or the end of the first century. So I would say either Papias or Polycarp, either one of them, man, to listen to them speak or to be able to sit down and talk with them a little would just be amazing. Awesome. Anybody uh, more recent, anybody from the second century onward that you'd want to go sit and listen to? Well, I wouldn't mind someone like Justin Martyr Mm -hmm. or Irenaeus. Those two would have been awesome to talk with because, well, they or Ignatius, probably Ignatius because Ignatius knew Clement of Rome and Polycarp. So it would only take us one away from e- even that. So the, the thing for me would be to get as close to the apostles as possible to hear the living voice. Of, nice. of I wouldn't be able to hear the living voice of the apostles, but if I could get the living voice of someone who had known and traveled with the apostles and heard from them, that'd be really cool. Yeah. Well, this has been very enjoyable for me. I appreciate your time, Dr. Lacona. I appreciate your openness and genuine answers that I think are really, really authentic. And I I really appreciate you and your ministry and everything you had to say today. And I am looking forward to our church, which is going to have you in an upcoming conference very soon. I'm looking forward to meeting you face to face. Thanks for your time. Any, Any parting shots you want to say before we go? No, hey, Chase, I'm looking forward to the conference, and thank you for inviting me. And yeah, this has been delightful being on here with you. And if someone wants more information they can uh, on what I'm doing, they can go to my website, risenjesus.com, or visit our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Mike Lacona official. And we've got over 400 videos there. Great YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Mike Lacona official, Mm -hmm. right? And that's L-I-C-O-N-A. All right. Well, Dr. Lacona, may the Lord bless you and keep you and bless your family and give you a great week. Thanks again for your time. Thank you, Chase.